This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Barnes, www.414.org.uk Confessions by St. Augustine Translated by Albert C. Outler Book 3, Chapter 1 I came to Carthage, where a cauldron of unholy loves was seething and bubbling all around me. I was not in love as yet, but I was in love with love, and from a hidden hunger I hated myself for not feeling more intensely a sense of hunger. I was looking for something to love, for I was in love with loving, and I hated security and a smooth way free from snares. Within me I had a dearth of that inner food which is thyself, my God, although that dearth caused me no hunger. And I remained without any appetite for incorruptible food, not because I was already filled with it, but because the emptier I became, the more I loathed it. Because of this, my soul was unhealthy and full of sores. It exuded itself forth, itching to be scratched by scraping on the things of the senses. Yet, had these things no soul, they would certainly not inspire our love. To love and to be loved was sweet to me, and all the more when I gained the enjoyment of the body of the person I loved. Thus I polluted the spring of friendship with the filth of concupiscence, and I dimmed its luster with the slime of lust. Yet foul and unclean as I was, I still craved, in excessive vanity, to be thought elegant and urbane, and I did fall precipitately into the love I was longing for. My God, my mercy, with how much bitterness didst thou, out of thy infinite goodness, flavour that sweetness for me! For I was not only beloved, but also I secretly reached the climax of enjoyment, and yet I was joyfully bound with troublesome ticks, so that I could be scourged with the burning iron rods of jealousy, suspicion, fear, anger, and strife. Chapter 2 Stage plays also captivated me, with their sights full of the images of my own miseries, fuel for my own fire. Now, why does a man like to be made sad by viewing doleful and tragic scenes, which he himself could not by any means endure? Yet, as a spectator, he wishes to experience from them a sense of grief, and in this very sense of grief his pleasure consists. What is this but wretched madness? for a man is more affected by these actions the more he is spuriously involved in these affections. Now, if he should suffer them in his own person, it is the custom to call this misery. But when he suffers with another, then it is called compassion. But what kind of compassion is it that arises from viewing fictitious and unreal sufferings? The spectator is not expected to aid the sufferer, but merely to grieve for him. And the more he grieves, 
the more he applauds the actor of these fictions. If the misfortunes of the characters, whether historical or entirely imaginary, are represented so as not to touch the feelings of the spectator, he goes away disgusted and complaining. But if his feelings are deeply touched, he sits it out attentively and sheds tears of joy. Tears and sorrow, then, are loved. Surely every man desires to be joyful, and though no one is willingly miserable, one may nevertheless be pleased to be merciful, so that we love their sorrows, because without them we should have nothing to pity. This also springs from that same vein of friendship. But whither does it go? Whither does it flow? Why does it run into that torrent of pitch which seethes forth those huge tides of loathsome lusts in which it is changed and altered past recognition, being diverted and corrupted from its celestial purity by its own will? Shall then compassion be repudiated? By no means. Let us, however, love the sorrow of others. But let us be aware of uncleanness, O my soul, under the protection of my God, the God of our fathers, who is to be praised and exalted, let us beware of uncleanness. I have not yet ceased to have compassion. But in those days, in the theatres, I sympathized with lovers when they sinfully enjoyed one another, although this was done fictitiously in the play. And when they lost one another, I grieved with them as if pity in them, and yet had delight in both grief and pity. Nowadays I feel much more pity for one who delights in his wickedness than for one who counts himself unfortunate because he fails to obtain some harmful pleasure or suffers the loss of some miserable felicity. This, surely, is the truer compassion, but the sorrow I feel in it has no delight for me. For although he that grieves with the unhappy should be commended for his work of love, yet he who has the power of real compassion would still prefer that there be nothing for him to grieve about. For if good will were to be ill will, which it cannot be, only then could he who is truly and sincerely compassionate wish that there were some unhappy people so that he might commiserate them. Some grief may then be justified, but none of it loved. Thus, it is that thou dost act, O Lord God, for thou lovest souls far more purely than we do, and art more incorruptibly compassionate, although thou art never wounded by any sorrow. Now, who is sufficient for these things? But at that time, in my wretchedness I loved to grieve, and I sought for things to grieve about. In another man's misery, even though it was feigned and impersonated on the stage, that performance of the actor pleased me best and attracted me most powerfully, which moved me to tears. What marvel then was it that an unhappy sheep, straying from thy flock and impatient of thy care, I became infected with a foul disease. This is the reason for my love of griefs, that they would not probe into me too deeply, 
for I did not love to suffer in myself such things as I loved to look at. And they were the sort of grief which came from here in those fictions, which affected only the surface of my emotion. Still, just as if they had been poisoned fingernails, their scratching was followed by inflammation, swelling, putrefaction, and corruption. Such was my life. But was it life, O oh my God? Chapter 3 And still thy faithful mercy hovered over me from afar. In what unseemly iniquities did I wear myself out, following a sacrilegious curiosity, which, having deserted thee, then began to drag me down into the treacherous abyss, into the beguiling obedience of devils, to whom I made offerings of my wicked deeds. And still, in all this, thou didst not fail to scourge me. I dared, even while thy solemn rites were being celebrated inside the walls of thy church, to desire and to plan a project which merited death as its fruit. For this thou didst chastise me with grievous punishments, but nothing in comparison with my fault, O thou, my greatest mercy, my God, my refuge from those terrible dangers in which I wandered with a stiff neck, receding farther from thee, loving my own ways and not thine, loving a vagrant liberty. Those studies I was then pursuing, generally accounted as respectable, were aimed at distinction in the courts of law, to excel in which, the more crafty I was, the more I should be praised. Such is the blindness of men that they even glory in their blindness. And by this time I had become a master in the school of rhetoric, and I rejoiced proudly in this honour and became inflated with arrogance. Still, I was relatively sedate, O Lord, as thou knowest, and had no share in the reckons of the wreckers, for this stupid and diabolical name was regarded as the very badge of gallantry, among whom I lived with a sort of ashamed embarrassment that I was not even as they were. But I lived with them, and at times I was delighted with their friendship, even when I abhorred their acts, that is, their reckon, in which they insolently attacked the modesty of strangers, tormenting them by uncalled-for jeers, gratifying their mischievous mirth. Nothing could more nearly resemble the actions of devils than these fellows. By what name, therefore, could they be more aptly called than wreckers, being themselves wrecked first, and altogether turned upside down? They were secretly mocked at and seduced by the deceiving spirits, in the very acts by which they amuse themselves in jeering and horseplay at the expense of others. Chapter 6 Among such as these, in that unstable period of my life, I studied the books of eloquence, for it was in eloquence that I was eager to be eminent, though from a reprehensible and vainglorious motive and a delight in human vanity. In the ordinary course of study, I came upon a certain book of Cicero's, whose language almost all admire, though not his heart. 
This particular book of his contains an exhortation to philosophy and was called Hortensius. Now, it was this book which quite definitely changed my whole attitude and turned my prayers toward thee, O Lord, and gave me new hope and new desires. Suddenly, every vain hope became worthless to me, and with an incredible warmth of heart I yearned for an immortality of wisdom and began now to arise that I might return to thee. It was not to sharpen my tongue further that I made use of that book. I was now nineteen, my father had been dead two years, and my mother was providing the money for my study of rhetoric. What won me in it was not its style, but its substance. How ardent was I then, my God! How ardent was I then, my God! How ardent to fly from earthly things to thee! Nor did I know how thou wast even then dealing with me. For with thee is wisdom. In Greek the love of wisdom is called philosophy, and it was with this love that the book inflamed me. There are some who seduce through philosophy, under a great alluring and honourable name, using it to colour and adorn their own errors. And almost all who did this, in Cicero's own time and earlier, are censored and pointed out in this book. In it there is also manifest that most salutary admonition of thy spirit, spoken by thy good and pious servant. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Since at that time, as thou knowest, O light of my heart, the words of the apostle were unknown to me, I was delighted with Cicero's exhortation, at least enough so that I was stimulated by it and enkindled and inflamed to love, to seek, to obtain, to hold, and to embrace, not this or that sect, but wisdom itself, wherever it might be. Only this checked my ardour, that the name of Christ was not in it. For this name, by thy mercy, O Lord, this name, of my Saviour, thy Son, my tender heart had piously drunk in, deeply treasured, even with my mother's milk. And whatsoever was lacking that name, no matter how erudite, polished and truthful, did not quite take complete hold of me. Chapter 5 I resolved, therefore, to direct my mind to the Holy Scriptures, that I might see what they were. And behold, I saw something not comprehended by the proud, nor disclosed to children, something lowly in the hearing, but sublime in the doing, and veiled in mysteries. Yet I was not of the number of those who could enter into it, or bend my neck to follow its steps. For then it was quite different from what I now feel. When I then turned toward the scriptures, they appeared to me to be quite unworthy to be compared with the dignity of Tully. For my inflated pride was repelled by their style, 
nor could the sharpness of my wit penetrate their inner meaning. Truly, they were of a sort to aid the growth of little ones, but I scorned to be a little one, and swollen with pride, I looked upon myself as fully grown. Chapter 6 Thus I fell among men, delirious in their pride, carnal and voluble, whose mouths were the snares of the devil, a trap made of the mixture of the syllables of thy name and the names of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the paraclete. These names were never out of their mouths, but only as sound and the clatter of tongues, for their heart was empty of truth. Still they cried, Truth, Truth, and were for ever speaking the word to me. But the thing itself was not in them. Indeed, they spoke falsely not only of thee, who truly art the truth, but also about the basic elements of this world, thy creation. And, indeed, I should have passed by the philosophers themselves even when they were speaking truth concerning thy creatures, for the sake of thy love, O highest good, and my Father, O beauty of all things beautiful. O truth, truth, how inwardly even then did the marrow of my soul sigh for thee, when, frequently and in manifold ways, in numerous and vast books, sounded out thy name, though it was only a sound. And in these dishes, while I starved for thee, they served up to me in thy stead the sun and moon, thy beauteous works, but still only thy works, and not thyself. Indeed, not even thy first work, for thy spiritual works came before these material creations, celestial and shining though they are. But I was hungering and thirsting, not even after those first works of thine, but after thyself, the truth, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Yet they still served me glowing fantasies in those dishes, and truly, it would have been better to have loved this very sun, which at least is true to our sight, than those illusions of theirs which deceive the mind through the eye. And yet, because I supposed the illusions to be from thee, I fed on them, not with avidity, for thou didst not taste in my mouth as thou art, and thou wast not these empty fictions neither was I nourished by them, but was instead exhausted. Food in dreams appears like our food awake, yet the sleepers are not nourished by it, for they are asleep. But the fantasies of the Manichaeans were not in any way like thee, as thou hast spoken to me now. They were simply fantastic and false. In comparison to them, the actual bodies which we see with our fleshly sight, both celestial and terrestrial, are far more certain. These true bodies, even the beasts and birds perceive as well as we do, and they are more certain than the images we form about them. And again, we do with more certainty form our conceptions about them than, from them, we go on by means of them, 
to imagine of other greater and infinite bodies which have no existence. With such empty husks was I then fed, and yet was not fed. But thou, my love, for whom I longed in order that I might be strong, neither art those bodies that we see in heaven, nor art thou those which we do not see there. For thou hast created them all, and yet thou reckonest them not among thy greatest works. How far, then, art thou from those fantasies of mine, fantasies of bodies which have no real being at all? The images of those bodies which actually exist are far more certain than these fantasies. The bodies themselves are more certain than the images, yet even these thou art not. Thou art not even the soul, which is the life of bodies. And clearly the life of the body is better than the body itself. But thou art the life of souls, life of lives, having life in thyself and never changing, O life of my soul. Where then was thou, and how far from me? Far indeed was I wandering away from thee, being barred even from the husks of those swine whom I fed with husks. For how much better were the fables of the grammarians and the poets than these snares? For verses and poems and the flying media are still more profitable truly than these men's five elements, with their various colours answering to the five caves of darkness, none of which exist, and yet in which they slay the one who believes in them. For verses and poems I can turn into food for the mind, for though I sang about the flying media, I never believed it, but those other things I did believe. Woe, woe, by what steps I was dragged down to the depths of hell, toiling and fuming because of my lack of the truth, even when I was seeking after thee, my God. To thee I now confess it, for thou didst have mercy on me when I had not yet confessed it. I sought after thee, but not according to the understanding of the mind, by means of which thou hast willed that I should excel the beasts, but only after the guidance of my physical senses. Thou wast more inward to me than the most inward part of me, and higher than my highest reach. I came upon that brazen woman, devoid of prudence, who, in Solomon's obscure parable, sits at the door of the house on a seat and says, Stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. This woman seduced me, because she found my soul outside its own door, dwelling on the sensations of my flesh, and ruminating on such food as I had swallowed through the physical senses. Chapter 7 For I was ignorant of that other reality, true being, and so it was that I was subtly persuaded to agree with these foolish deceivers when they put their questions to me, Whence comes evil? and 
Is God limited by a bodily shape, and has he hairs and nails? And are those patriarchs to be esteemed righteous who had many wives at one time, and who killed men, and who sacrificed living creatures? In my ignorance I was much disturbed over these things, and, though I was retreating from the truth, I appeared to myself to be going toward it, because I did not yet know that evil was nothing but a privation of good, that indeed it has no being. And how should I have seen this when the sight of my eyes went no further than physical objects, and the sight of my mind reached no further than to phantasms? And I did not know that God is a spirit who has no parts extended in length and breadth, whose being has no mass, for every mass is less in part than in a whole. And if it be an infinite mass, it must be less in such parts as are limited by a certain space than its infinity. It cannot, therefore, be wholly everywhere, as spirit is, as God is. And I was entirely ignorant as to what is that principle within us by which we are like God, which is rightly said in Scripture to be made after God's image. Nor did I know that true inner righteousness, which does not judge according to custom, but by the measure of the most perfect law of God Almighty, by which the mores of various places and times were adapted to those places and times, though the law itself is the same always and everywhere, not one thing in one place and another in another. By this inner righteousness Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob and Moses and David, and all those commended by the mouth of God were righteous and were judged unrighteous only by foolish men who were judging by human judgment and gauging their judgment of the moors of the whole human race by the narrow norms of their own moors. It is as if a man in an armory, not knowing what piece goes on what part of the body, should put a greave on his head and a helmet on his shin, and then complain because they did not fit. Or as if on some holiday, when afternoon business was forbidden, one were to grumble at not being allowed to go on selling as it had been lawful for him to do in the forenoon. Or again, as if in a house he sees a servant handle something that the butler is not permitted to touch, or when something is done behind a stable that would be prohibited in a dining-room, and then a person should be indignant that in one house and one family the same things are not allowed to every member of the household. Such is the case with those who cannot endure to hear that something was lawful for righteous men in former times that is not so now, or that God, for certain temporal reasons, commanded then one thing to them, and another now to these. Yet both would be serving the same righteous will. These people should see that in one man, one day, and one house, different things are fit for different members, and a thing that was formerly lawful may become, after a time, unlawful, and something allowed or commanded in one place that is justly prohibited and punished in another. Is justice, then, variable and changeable? No, but the times over which she presides are not all alike, because they are different times. But men, whose days upon the earth are few, 
cannot by their own perception harmonize the causes of former ages and other nations of which they had no experience and compare them with these of which they do have experience although in one and the same body or day or family they can readily see that what is suitable for each member season part and person may differ to the one they take exception to the other they submit these things I did not know then nor had I observed their import they met my eyes on every side and I did not see I composed poems in which I was not free to place each foot just anywhere but in one meter one way and in another meter another way nor even in any one verse was the same foot allowed in all places yet the art by which I composed did not have different principles for each of the different cases but the same law throughout still I did not see how by that righteousness to which good and holy men submitted all those things that God had commanded were gathered in a far more excellent and sublime way into one moral order and it did not vary in any essential respect though it did not in varying times prescribe all things at once but rather distributed and prescribed what was proper for each and being blind I blamed those pious fathers not only for making use of present things that God had commanded and inspired them to do but also for foreshadowing things to come as God revealed it to them. <laughs>